This Week in Startups is brought to you by Our Crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join Our Crowd for free at OurCrowd.com slash twist. Roman, erectile dysfunction used to be tough to talk about, but now there's Roman. Go to GetRoman.com slash twist and get $15 off your first order of ED treatment, a free online visit, and free two-day shipping. And Squarespace. Turn your idea into a new website. Go to Squarespace.com slash twist for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code twist to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups. I'm your host, Jason Calacanis. And today on the program, an artist who made incredible videos and worked with Saturday Night Live pivoted his company from being a service company into being an enterprise company. And that company is Frame.io. You've probably heard of them. Uh, and the CEO and co-founder is Emery Wells. Welcome to the program, Emery Wells. How are you? Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm great. It's great to be here. How are you holding up under covid uh, in New York City, uh, my hometown, it's been a, you guys had a rough go of it early on and then things opened up and then things closed up again, huh? You know, I feel kind of guilty saying it, but totally fine because I'm introverted and this, I'm one of the people that's in the camp of, you know, I uh, quite enjoy working from home and I feel very productive and, and uh, I'm doing, I'm doing well and our company's doing well. So I, we're very fortunate that, you know, we, in this uh, environment, we have a tool that enables distributed work. So, you know, that's, that's certainly been, we've seen the tailwinds of that. Yeah, that is uh, a common theme I've heard among my friends. The extroverts like myself are losing their minds. And this is just torture and solitary confinement in their minds, even though it's not close to that, but it's, it's in the same wheelhouse, but not exactly as brutal. <laughs> and then for introverts, it's like, oh, this is great. We don't have to do meetings. So That's tell right. everybody in the audience what Frame.io is uh, and how you came up with the idea. Sure. So Frame.io is a video review and collaboration product. And we essentially have a tool that enables video teams to, to, to do their work. Um, so prior to Frame.io, I had a post-production company in New York City. As you mentioned, we used to do things like the Saturday Night Live digital shorts and commercial parodies. So I, I spent, I don't know, fit, almost 15 years uh, doing professional post-production filmmaking type stuff. And we started building Frame.io as an internal tool at that company, really just to solve the problems that we were having, working with our, with our, with our clients, with our vendors, internally with one another. And when you think about, um, for those that maybe are not as close to the process of creating video, when you think about creating video, you know, like, like any business process, and especially the more, you know, the more professional something gets, just the, the more complex everything gets, the more people are involved, the more companies are involved. And so when you're working on video, well, you obviously have first and foremost, um, uh, let me, let me set the record straight. I think sometimes people see Frame.io and they think it's a video editing tool, like a collaborative video editing tool, like a Figma for video. And that's not what we are. We, we solve, um, you know, kind of the media sharing and the review and communication and kind of approval processes and things like that. But it starts with, well, you have different, different people working on stuff. You need to share big files, you know, maybe there's an editor that's in one location. There's, someone doing motion graphics, there's a client in another location. So uh, Frame.io first and foremost kind of hosts all, all the video files that you're working with and it acts as a central repository. 
And then um, all of the communication review happens on Frame.io. So when you think about, you know, um, getting a video, if I sent you a video, Jason, if you were yeah. doing something, you, I'm sure you've made some videos and done some a marketing. Couple. And if I, yeah. if I sent you a video uh, for one of your businesses, you'd immediately have a million thoughts, right? You're looking mm -hmm. at it, say it's a unlisted YouTube link or something. I don't know. Yeah. You'd immediately have a million thoughts. And you'd sit down and you want to tell me, because say I'm the editor, you want to tell me all these thoughts. And you're like, all right, let's see. Uh, well, uh, I'm going to sit down at the email and say, okay, um, let's, how am I going to construct these thoughts? Well, in the beginning or, or in the middle, or there's that part where the thing, when I said this or someone said that, that I want to like change or cut out, video has a time dimension. And it's actually very challenging to communicate around an asset that is moving. And so we have things like timestamped comments. So you comment directly on a video frame. You can, you know, select a range uh, and say, well, from here to here, let's cut this thing out. Um, so, you know, that's the, that's the gist of what we facilitate. Then we also integrate with all the creative tools. So when you leave a comment, so if, if I was the video editor and you left me a comment and said, Hey, I don't like this shot. Well, actually what happens for me is that comment shows up in my video editing tool. So if I'm using Premiere or Final Cut or DaVinci Resolve, actually shows up on the clip in my video editing tool. And I just said, oh, immediately I can just swap it out and then kick off another version. So um, in some ways you could kind of think of Frame.io like, you know, sort of like a GitHub where we act as the central repository, but the actual work is happening elsewhere. It's happening, you know, like in, in, in with developers, they have a code editing tool and then they push to GitHub, which is the central repository. So that's similar dynamic with Frame.io. There's video editors, there's motion graphics artists, there's people that are doing all this work. They push to Frame.io and then that's where people can look at it, can collaborate, can say yay or nay, I like this, I don't like that. And then we go through this iterative process. And so in that way, it's almost like you can think of two components there. One is the Dropbox kind of media yeah. management component. Yeah. And then there's the piece which is more like the envision and the notes and the approval and workflow process. That's right. Yep. Those are, that's, that's perfect merge of tools that is Frame.io. And is... That used to occur uh, or occurred best, at least from my, you know, outside of the industry, but know people who've made movies and TV shows and stuff like that. And having visited them in an editing suite somewhere down in Tribeca, Manhattan, and you would go into a room and there'd be a big avid. And basically, people just sat, sat over the editor's shoulders and, and gave them notes. That's in, right. Uh, gave them notes in, in that sort of model. That's right. That still occurs. Is that considered the best practice or do people prefer doing it in this distributed fashion? And what have you learned about which works better? Like, can you make, you know, I don't know, there will be blood, you know, in, in this kind of format or yep. do you need to be in the room with the, with the people, you know? Yeah. So that's, so that, that's exactly how it's always historically worked, which is you sit in the room, you're over each other's shoulders and, um, and that's how it's been forever. In fact, that was really the only only way you could possibly do it because um, you needed expensive equipment. You know, you needed the footage. If the footage was on a, a big hard drive, it was all very tied to the physical location. Um, that started to evolve over the past. I would say, you know, basically as the as the internet got a little bit faster and online cloud storage got a little bit cheaper, people started naturally, um, you know moving some of this processes to like cloud-based tools, but they didn't have purpose-built tools. So they would use like stuff that wasn't meant for video. They'd use Dropbox, they'd use Hightail links, they would use, you know, whatever, Hightail, you send it, Dropbox, all this sort of amalgamation of stuff just to kind of try to try to do it. In fact, it was very common um, actually to use in the early days, like just unlisted YouTube links or, or private Vimeo links or things like that. So, um, uh, Anyway, historically, it's worked that way, but 
But absolutely, I mean, now um, with tools like Frame.io, people are shifting to this distributed way of working. And I think what COVID has proved is that, you know, we were already moving in this direction. It was already happening. This was already the, the, the trend. But COVID, of course, was, you know, was a catalyst for people having to adopt this. And, and guess what? Like, everything's still coming out on Netflix, right? Like all the, yeah. everything's still happening. And so I think that it was, it was, you know, for us, this was uh, from a business perspective, it was good from a world perspective. Of course, it's terrible, but it, it proved that people thought people did think there were a big group of people that thought, well, for like a certain class of work, you couldn't do it in this distributed way. You had to sit next to each other. And that's, that's, that's proven to be, to be not true. I think like um, many have experienced with COVID, there are pros and cons to working in an async distributed way. Sometimes, you know, there are benefits to working live and there are cons to working live. There are benefits to working async distributed and there are cons to working async distributed. So I, I That's think really interesting your are, point though about prior to um, everybody being forced to work from home, everybody being forced to be distributed, there were people who believed there was a cap on what type of project could be done asynchronously a fancy way of saying like you do a little bit of work and I'll get to it later. Asynchronous like being email, right? You can just yeah. you can do your work, send me the emails, they sit there and then I respond to them on my schedule. Uh, yeah. when I want to, then you respond, right? Um but the are, am I correct that the entire industry, you know, making something like Mandalorian or making something like um, you know, I don't know, Queen's Gambit, all that stuff had to be done distributed. People couldn't be in the same you know, video editing bay. That's right. And so what level of shows, if I, if we were to, as a, as a, the audience here to imagine, what's the highest level of show that would use something like uh, your product? Uh, so up to the highest level. So we, we have a, we have a pretty wide range of, of customers uh, all, you know, from the, from the individual creator that are doing kind of like high end YouTube videos all the way up to Hollywood studios. So we've had, um, you know, shows from every Hollywood studio on Frame.io. A, a big part of our effort over the kind of maturing of our company has been being able to, um, you know, have the security uh, controls and accreditations to, to work with those studios. Uh -huh. And we've, we've accomplished that over the past couple of years. So we have major Hollywood feature films, films that have won Oscars, big, you know, television shows. All, all of it goes through, through Frame.io. And the key issue is the... Um the internet, just people always think the internet was fast since, you know, whatever, they got their cable modem in, you know, 2000 or whatever. But actually a cable modem in 10, 20, 30 megabit, that's not actually enough to do this high end video editing, right? Like, what do you actually need as a spec for people to reasonably work from home on these videos? Or is it enough? Yeah, it depends on your workflow. So, it, you know, it depends on what, st what, what portion of the workflow you're responsible for. Um, but first of all, all the, you know, all the shows you mentioned, they're all being done from home now. So there is no, none of those companies are, you know, working in the ways that they did. They're all being done from home. We've, um, done a lot of interesting case studies of how they shifted, um, to those, to those work from home environments. But, um, it, you know, for the, for the, for the basics, the basics of using Frame.io as a review and approval tool, you actually don't really need a lot of bandwidth. You need like 20 megabits, you know, you'll get, a, oh. you'll get by with 20 megabits. If you want to do, you know, an entire workflow where everyone's distributed um, and you're moving like large original camera assets, I don't know, you know, the more the better, right? Because let me give you some some specs. The typical camera, like for any, 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 I'll just say the average amount of footage that's generated from an average amount of shoot, uh, an average shoot is going to be probably one terabyte per camera per day. It could range. It could be 500 gigs. It can so it's a lot, right? Um, 
I'd say that if you have a gigabit connection, you can meaningfully move that data around. And, and one of the other big things that we focus on is large data transfer because we, we mm. have to deal with that. So um, moving lar- large amounts of data over the internet, actually pretty hard. Browsers are pretty crummy at, you know, at, at doing uh, file transfer in an accelerated fashion. There's actually a whole sub industry, um, you know, kind of more niche industry, but a whole sub industry that focuses on moving on, on large data transfer around the internet. They focus on industries like media and entertainment, oil and gas, like all kinds of companies that have large and data. And they do that they through like some special backends and, and servers uh, that are distributed, I guess. Tell me how they solve that problem, uh, the last mile problem in the terabyte per camera per day when we get back on the Speaking Startups. Do you ever wish that you invested early in some of the best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? I bet you did. Well, our crowd investors were able to invest in many of those IPOs because our crowd allows accredited investors to invest directly in these startups and they can do it easily and they can do it early. And that's what it's all about. And you know, these companies go on and sometimes they IPO and other times they get bought. Our crowd investors benefited from investing early in companies like Beyond Meat that IPO'd. Amazing, right? That's a great exit strategy. Another one is many of our crowd's companies have been bought by really high-end acquirers like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Our crowd's professional research team identifies these promising companies and promising funds across a range of sectors. And they do it across a range of stages and many different locations. And our crowd is investing in medical technology, ag tech, food production, the multi-billion dollar uh, robotic industry, and so much more. So here is a very easy call to action for you. You go to ourcrowd.com slash twist, O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash twist. You go to ourcrowd.com slash twist, and then you can start investing. Our crowd is free to sign up for, and you just go to O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash twist. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, we are here with Emery Wells. He is the CEO and co-founder of Frame.io, based in my hometown, New York, previously he ran a uh, very successful uh, boutique video agency uh, that did SNL's digital shorts. That's pretty cool. Did you do Lazy Sunday? Was that one of the first ones you did? Or I started working with that team just at, uh, kind of just after uh, sort of the, towards the tail end of Andy Samberg's time there. So I I did work on um, not the original dip. Natalie Portman. No, not Natalie Portman, not so, but I was going to say not, not the original. So Dick in a Box was the other, you know, big. And yes, one. that was the other breakout. All right. So there was, there was a three part series. So Dick in a Box was before my time, but then there was two others that came after that, which was called, um, I think I'm it was called like, Not Gay and th- Not, no, it was called Not Gay in a Three Way and, uh, some, something else. So, uh, <laughs> I did, I did the, the two episodes that came after Dick in a Box and then, and then, you know, for four seasons straight, basically all the pre recorded. Everything from trailers to the commercials to the music videos, all of those. Yeah. And, and so tell us about... We did post-production. Tell us about how the internet, uh, how video editing and studios are making this work. Like our, I remember back in the day, I knew somebody was working with James Cameron on, I guess, Avatar. And the, I mean, James Cameron had some kind of crazy fiber brought to his house or whatever they were telling yeah. me. Like, and they did all these crazy backhoe things and they spent a million dollars on fiber lines or something to make it work. And that's right. That's yeah. right. So there's uh, basically two approaches these days. So that, that, that comp, I probably know the company that James Cameron 
worked with to get that fiber line installed. There's a company that basically has a private fiber network that runs between all the major studios and anyone that has money to get a private fiber to their location. And so it enables the studios around the world to work with one another and they're moving, you know, terabytes and terabytes of data. It's very expensive, as you can imagine. It's dark, you know, they basically, they license dark fiber, they build their own private fiber network. Um, that's one model. The other model, which is what we what, what we use and what other some other companies in the space use, is basically still using the backbone of the internet, um, the standard backbone of the internet. But there's a lot of actually a lot of things you can do to 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 do large data transfer. Um, and there's infrastructure side. There is um, you know there's there's an infrastructure side. There's a software side, and you know maybe just to give you the broad strokes of it. When you're moving data, you have you start on you know say my machine here. I have a hard drive, a lot of data. I got to get it. I got to get it to a location, right? So the first barrier is well, what is my interface to even communicate with the internet? Am I using a browser? Browsers mm. have HTTP. That's a pretty crummy way to move large amounts yeah. of data because it's slow. Um, you can use other protocols like UDP, but then you know you're going to typically go to like a desktop based client because um, you're not going to have that support in a, in a browser. Uh, so a lot of companies will first solve that first that first mile problem of like how do I get stuff fast to the internet in general, and they'll use UDP with a desktop client. We chose not to do that. We actually use HTTP, which means just works in the browser like normal, right? Um, and the way to get around the the speed barrier is it's it's fairly simple now, not not like a not a novel approach at this point, but. We take the file and when you drop it into the browser, we break up that single file into thousands and thousands of little blobs and we do parallel streams. So, so um, you know, that like can Like a download accelerator. People may be familiar yeah. with this. Like back in the That's early right. days of the internet, you would have a download accelerator, Chrome extension or something. So instead of downloading yeah. from one FTP server, you would download from 10 at the same time and yeah. you would then compile, recompile it. Exactly. BitTorrent so was a similar si protocol. Yeah. Similar idea. So we take that one file, we do multiple streams up to the server, and then when it gets to the server, it reassembles all those little those little blobs. But then, you know, uh, the second component is well, we want to be communicating with a server that's very close to our physical location, so we limit latency. And so that's that's how you you know you utilize a global CDN. So we're communicating with a server that's that's near to the to the user. So if somebody in London is uploading, they're uploading to a server in London. But our home base is not in London. Our home base is in North Virginia. That's where our that's where our our data origin is. And so now we got to get the data from from London to North Virginia, and that's another that's a long stretch. And the basically the 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 what we what we do and other people, but what we do is um, uh, we then we are not going over the standard internet. We're using we're on AWS. We're a company that's on AWS. We go over the Amazon backbone. We can move it very quickly, so we can do low latency connection for the first mile. And then do um, UDP base, you know, just blast data on the on the AWS backbone from London to North uh, to North Virginia. And that's probably also very economical, right? Amazon has that as a fixed cost business. They've already run those cables or whatever. So well, do they murder you, you think on so? Those I mean, it's pretty expensive. Like, so the reality is, is you know, our our users really they they if you if you look us up on Twitter, people are always commenting like, oh my god, what kind of magic sauce is in Frame.io? How am I uploading so fast? It costs us a lot of money. It does cost uh -huh. us a lot of money. It's very, it's, it's a, it's a very expensive part. It's a, probably one of the most expensive parts of our infrastructure, providing this accelerated, uh, file data transfer service, but it's so worth it. And you need it. You know, you, you absolutely need it. Of course, we've over time, we've learned how to make it less expensive. We're continuing to do that. It's very important for us to figure out how to keep bringing those costs down, but, um, it is pricey. It is pricey. And has this ability to be distributed? How is being distributed changed the industry in that? You know, uh, when I was growing up in New York, 
you know, there were filmmakers in New York, you know, and Spike Lee, whoever, you know, NYU film crowd. Darren Aronofsky was doing this like pie thing and Bennett Miller was doing the cruise. It was like this like little cadre of uh, editors, but eventually they all had to, where they were all thinking like, I got to go to LA because I'm not going to be relevant, right? And if you were a writer or an editor to be in New York versus LA, you were basically considering like, well, maybe I'm, I'm up capping my upside here of mm-hmm. what's possible. Has that changed now where like, they don't care where video editors are now that there's a pandemic work from that would have been in, you know, bays, uh, editing bays in Studio City are now sent around the world or was that already occurring before this? It was already starting to occur, but not, you know, now, not nearly like it's occurring now. And so right now, location is relatively irrelevant. I'd say there's two parts to that question. The first is that for the people that are like, Hey, do I have to be in a major market? You know, if, do I have to be in LA? Well, something that's changed is that, you know, like if you want to be in Hollywood, you still have to be in LA, but Hollywood is actually, it's one slice, you know, the, the world of video and the opportunities to be a storyteller and a, in a, in a creative, have just expanded so much, right? Like, yes, Hollywood is still in Hollywood, but ma- majority of the industry, I mean, if you look at like our market, our total addressable market, majority of the market is not in LA, you know, feature film markets in LA, but if you look at total global footprint of people that make video, they're just all over. Hmm. And how, how much of your product is being used by the studios, the TV uh, industry versus let's say, this emerging YouTube sort of, you know, or that's not emerging anymore. I guess that's kind of established. You have the sort of YouTubers who are making the three to, you know, 10 minute videos. And then you have this new phenomenon of, you know, stories and TikTok. Are any of those type of people using your product or is it just for a 30 second, you know, or two minute clip? It's, it's not necessary. Uh, yeah. So the answer is yes. I mean, you, uh, they are, uh, the threshold for using Frame.io at the low end is people that are kind of earning a living making video. So the TikTokers are typically not, well, maybe the very high end ones, just like the YouTubers, high end YouTubers. If you're making, if you're earning a living, then Frame.io is fair game. I mean, we, we, we're very accessible. We start at 15 bucks a month. So, you know, very, very accessible. But then we scale all the way up to, to the Hollywood feature films, major media organizations, broadcast organizations, major brands that have, you know, big internal, internal teams. So it's everyone. I mean, when we pitch to investors, you know, one of the questions I get asked every single time, I've gotten asked every single round and I don't think they've ever felt my answer was sufficient. They say, well, who's Frame.io for? Like, are you for X or are you for Y? You know, are you going to be yeah. an enterprise company or are you going to be, you know, this consumer company? And, um, I think that, you know, what I've already said is like Frame.io is for anybody that makes video because actually the fundamental mechanics of what you do when you're making video are actually the same, whether you're doing a YouTube video or a feature film. Um, obviously, there are differences and there are different needs from, you know, security perspective and how we build our business with go-to-market function and, you know, sales and blah, blah, blah. Lots of things differ. But the our, our model has been we have a retail business, which is self-serve. People can sign up with a credit card. You never have to talk to us. Very easy. That generates a lot of awareness, a lot of word of mouth, and then people kind of spread it into these organizations that then start using it. And our sales team goes in and sells to them. So uh, we've had a very, we've had this great virtuous cycle of, you know, having, I think this is actually more common now for, for SaaS enterprise where you have this bottoms up and top down motion and they're feeding each other. Um, and that's worked very successfully for Frame.io. So we, we have all, all the stu- every studio, every major studio has had something go through Frame.io at this point. Um, and we, um, have, have been able to meet all those, you know, security requirements. 
but then we still have the you know the the individual creator that's doing stuff for the web that's got to be like their big uh pet peeve now is making sure that the luke skywalker cameo at the end of you know mandalorian season two spoiler alert (laughs) if you haven't seen it you know some cameo like that or ashoka whatever doesn't leak right and and they i saw john favreau talking about it couldn't believe and mark hamill couldn't believe that his cameo at the end of mandalorian season two didn't uh leak and I guess that's the issue you're talking about here in terms of security and authentication that you had to, as a SaaS company, convince these studios that you as Frame.io can't see their videos. All that stuff is either saved on their servers or saved on your servers, but you can't see it, right? You have to, and I'm not saying that Disney's your customer, but in, in in a hypothetical case like that, you've got to clear their hurdle in terms of security, correct? That's right. And, and Disney really sets the benchmark for security in the industry. They, they're sort of, um, the benchmark setter. Um, that, that's absolutely correct. So, you know, it is all the, all the stuff is on our server, but, um, you know, there is a, there's a, a process, uh, that requires multiple humans to, uh, for any one human to get access to, to footage, uh, in frame IO. And, uh, you know, we have to do the standard, the standard enterprise security stuff, SOC 2, you know, SOC compliance or SOC 2 type 2 compliant. Um, there's something in the media and entertainment industry called TPN, which is like a governing body that, that manages content security. It's kind of like it was it used to be MPAA. I'm sure you've all seen that logo. Yeah, sure. It's now it's now it's that sort of evolved into TPN, Trusted Partner Network. And so we've gone through all these programs. We've built some really cool tech. Uh, we have a feature called Watermark ID, which is um, if I sent you a video and you hit play, we would actually do a real time on demand transcode of that asset with all of your personally identifiable information burned in. It would say JSON, location, time, IP address, and that's visually burned into every frame and it happens in real time. So even if it's a feature film, like two hours, you hit play, it's going to start playing back in two seconds. That's amazing. So if Howard Stern wants to watch some film that's coming out or they give him a screener ahead of time, it's going to say Howard Stern at the bottom of it. He always complains about that. Uh, When we get back, oh yeah, and uh, shout out to Vanta (laughs) doing SOC 2 compliance for folks vanta.com slash twist uh one of our sponsors is inside joke does uh you had to do sock 2 compliance at some point i take it and yeah make sure that you could sell enterprise yeah. uh into yeah. it all right when we get back i want to talk about uh how you did pricing on this product and how you raised money for it coming out of a service background i don't think you were like a developer you were an artist right and a, and a producer and so that would lower your credibility in the tech field but raise it in the uh obviously in the media space so i'm curious how you were received by the venture industrial complex and how you cleared market uh, raising money for Frame.io when we get back on This Week in Startups. It can be awkward or even embarrassing to talk about erectile dysfunction. Usually we just brush it off, we blame ourselves, but Roman is here to get the advice you want and the help you need with no shame. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your own home. A healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. And if medication is appropriate, Roman will ship you real medication with free two-day shipping. The whole process is very straightforward, simple, and most importantly, discreet. Erectile dysfunction used to be something really tough to talk about, but now there's Roman. And getting started is so simple. You go to getroman.com slash twist, getroman.com slash twist, and you will get $15 off your first order of ED treatment, a free online visit, and 
free two-day shipping. That's right. Go to GetRoman.com slash twist for $15 off your first order of ED treatment, a free online visit, and free two-day discreet shipping. Let's get back to this amazing episode. All right. Welcome back. Uh, Emery Wells is with us from Frame.io. How many people working over there now? Ballpark. We just had, I think, nine or 10 start this week. So I think we're at 220 or 230. 230 people. And you're all distributed now, I take it. All distributed, yeah. Yeah. And, and you had some fancy office in Soho or something in New York that now is empty and you just pay the rent bill every month? That's it. Yeah. We're in the financial district. We got a, about a year ago, we got a beautiful new office, 31st floor, great views, Perfect lots time. of space. Yeah. So, um, it's got to be brutal to write that check every month. Huh? Yes. If I had to physically write that check every month, it would be, it would be brutal. It, it, I would puke. Um, I still puke a little bit when I think about it, but it's yeah, just sorry to bring it up. No, it's okay. <laughs> We're all it's, having the same thing. It's like, as a founder, I don't know if you had this experience, like when you get that office and you have that incredible office with the incredible views and you've spent the time making this beautiful nest for everybody to, to live in and you've got this incredible vision and just, you're like, okay, this is going to be worth the money. This is 5% of our spend every year. It's 12% of our spend every year, whatever it is, but it's going to build the culture. And now all these culture nests are just sitting there like empty. Yeah, it's, it's painful. so sad. It's super painful. Do you go there and like walk around like, uh, and just sometimes. sit there alone like a madman sometimes? Yeah. I've done it a handful of times. I mean, it's too depressing. <laughs> I, I live, I, I live walking distance. I'm like, I'm like a seven, eight minute walk from the office, uh, yeah. which is, by the way, founder hack, like do that for yourself. Like, you have the ability to architect 100%. You, this is the greatest thing about being the founder is that you get to put the office within walking distance and so much so that like, yeah, being able to go home or change or, you know, whatever it is, go back to the office after you, you know, go to dinner or something. It's just incredible, right? It changes your life. On, I, I never had that experience before. And there, a little inside joke that like when we moved to, we were, I live in, live in downtown Manhattan. We used to have a, uh, an office in Flatiron, which is, you know, fine commute. It was, you know, not a long commute, but it's a commute. When we moved into our downtown yeah, office. Sixth Avenue, zip zip. Yeah, super yeah. easy. But when we moved into our downtown office, basically me and our VP of finance were kind of the, you know, the deciders and we both live down here. So we, people are like, <laughs> oh, okay, we get it. Actually, I was very against moving downtown because I thought people wanted to stay central to Flatiron. And I, I didn't architect it intentionally, but I would never change it now that I have it. Well, the other thing that's great is, I mean, if you're living in Queens or Brooklyn, getting to downtown Manhattan is like, it's the first or second or third stop, right? If you're coming over yeah. Manhattan Bridge or yeah. you're coming yeah. through the tunnel, it's just so simple. Yeah. D and changing now Manhattan locations is cheaper is such than Brooklyn. Sometimes, yeah, it, doing you know, changing locations is is a bit of an annoying thing. You do like a commute study, you try to understand like what's the impact, how are people going to receive it? You know, when you live, I'm sure in San Francisco, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't live in San Francisco, but the same, I'm sure the same way in San Francisco, like people make decisions based on their commute. Like it's an important life decision. <laughs> it is one of the most. I think it's like one of the you know one of the great things to come out of this pause that we've had is people are reevaluating the impact of everything, right? And so I don't know if you have kids, but when you no. have so when you have kids, you're like, what is going on at school? You know, <laughs> like, what actually am I getting out of that? And then you start realizing when you're homeschooling, like, oh, what percentage of school is learning versus socialization versus babysitting, like depending on the age or, or childcare. And you kind of, and, and now you learn that with people commuting. You're like, how much work were people actually doing at the office? How much of it was socialization? Okay, people probably were grinding out five solid hours of work, two or three hours of socialization meetings, whatever. So maybe they were working four or five really tight hours a day. They were doing 25 hours of work 
now they're working from home, they can bring that up to seven, eight hours and they've saved the commute. So the employee gets two more hours and the employer gets two more hours. That's my basic math. How do you think about it? And how do you think about now that you've got 24 hour places, putting shots in arms, we're taping this in the 13th month of 2020, January, January 2, 2020. Right. (laughs) I mean, in the 16th month of this pandemic, you're going to, or whatever, you're going to, they're doing 24 hour shots now, right? And anybody over 65 can get one now, I think. So we're going to quickly get on the other side of this, God willing. Knock on wood. So how are you thinking about returning? And how are your employees thinking about returning? And what do you do? Like if some people move, like some of your people probably moved up to, uh, you know, Hastings on the Hudson or whatever. Everybody went north, yeah. I heard. Yeah. We, so, you know, I think what we we let people just, we told people, hey, do whatever you want. Like you go wherever you want. Don't worry yeah. about like needing to be back at a certain time. You know, we're going to give plenty of notice. And if you moved or had to get away and we're not going to mandate that you're back. We've just sort of been like very flexible. What we didn't do is what you know, some other companies did, which I admire is they just said, Hey, like early on, there's like, you know what? Distributed forever if you want. And, and we, we kind of held the optionality to understand how the world was going to change. And like, do we, do we want to return to the office? Do we not? We wanted to hold on to that optionality rather than just saying, because once you say it, you kind of can't claw that back. It's, it's pretty yeah. tough to claw back. But we've been very, very open and just, you know, we've, we've, so one, a couple of things have happened. One is we started hiring people wherever. We just stopped caring about where they were. We hired a lot of people that were not in New York City over the past eight, nine months. How did that change your life as the founder and the velocity of what you're doing as a company? When you remove the geography, you know, vector from hiring? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, of course, it's enabled hiring. Um, as everyone has experienced, there's, there's talented people all over. It's, um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's changed our velocity, our ability to get, I don't, you know, I don't think we've had any impact on our ability to be effective as, you know, getting stuff done. We've had a lot of focus on just like improving our overall operational effectiveness. And so, you know, this year has been, or 20, last year was probably one of the most effective, efficient years we've had. Mm. How much of that was, was that due to work from home? Maybe a little bit, but you know, we did a lot of work on operational effectiveness, but I don't think, I don't think that work from home makes you less effective. It doesn't make you less effective, and it likely makes you recapture. Do, do you believe my premise that people were working yes. probably five or six hours, and then this four hours got reclaimed, and you kind of split it fifty-fifty with the employee? Yeah, I think so. I think generally, I mean, it it it, it varies from employee to employee, but yeah, I think so. I think generally that I agree with that math. Have you? Did, what was the culture when you were in the office, and then? What happened to the culture and have you given that thought, you know, and sort of distributed? People are doing these like, I don't know, happy hours on Zoom or stuff like that. That seems just crazy dystopian to me. I went to like a 50th birthday party on Zoom and it was, mm-hmm. I literally felt like this was like some crazy Darren Aronofsky film. Like it was like a requiem for a dream level <laughs> dystopian to me. Like we've done Zoom everything and really? it's, 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 it's a little weird sometimes, but you know, you, you make it work. Um, we, so we've done a lot of Zoom sort of like social things. We have, um, uh, you know, like different groups, different groups will get together. Our leadership team will get together for like a wine, a Zoom wine tasting and things like that, which, you know, it Corny, is a little bit weird. The, the, the weirdest, I'll tell you the weirdest thing that we did, which I really appreciate the effort. Uh, one of the things, you know, we, I think we have a pretty fun culture. Um, one of the traditions that we started last year that we had so much fun doing or kind of 2018 uh, I'm sorry, 2019 that we wanted to carry forward into 2020 is we did a um, uh, we did a lip sync battle. 
So we did a lip sync battle at a at a drag club, and it was so much fun. Um, everybody just had so so much fun. It was hosted. It was hosted by uh, some really brilliant, funny uh, drag queens. And we were like, well, we got to do lip sync battle. We're going to figure out a way to do lip sync battle. So what do you do? Do you do lip sync battle over Zoom? Well, that You're would be- You're talking about Lucky Changs. Did you do Lucky Changs when you were in New York? I don't think it was Lucky Changs. I don't think it was Lucky Changs. I'm forgetting okay. the name of the- of the, of the, the Diva Royale? Maybe, yeah. We rented out the venue and I forget, it was-, it was <laughs> But I forget the name of the venue, but we're, okay, well, Lips, how do we do- New York's ultimate drag queen show place, Palace. <laughs> I honestly don't remember the name of the, of the venue. It could have been any of this. Drag culture, just, you know, putting it out there. Yeah, yeah. yep, yep, yep. So what we did is uh, we still uh, had it hosted by some really funny and brilliant drag queens on Zoom. Rather than doing the lip sync battle live, which would have been very weird, people pre-submitted yes. their videos and we watched them ah. on Zoom together. Uh, look, I'll say the whole thing so was, it was a like- watch kind of, party. Yeah. It was a watch party. The whole thing was a little bit, a little bit funny. Um, but you know what? Like- It was something- people, it was something and people liked it. You know, people liked Great. it. Yeah, I saw Cameo. I had the guy from Cameo on the pod and uh, he's been doing, you can get a celebrity to be on your company Zoom and you think about it like, okay, I got 220 employees. We got this X budget a year. So you much know, having easier. like a celebrity come on for 5K or 10K to address the company and, and goof off with the company is kind of dope when you think about it right like, it is and it's so much easier to do it's so much you know you just say hey jump on a zoom from home and they're like all right i don't have to be in new york yeah, 10k to be in for like jason sudeikis or somebody to come on and do a ted lasso <laughs> q a yeah. or something yeah it's so amazing yeah when we get from the final break i got to cover two things with you raising money and going really explaining how you went from a service company to a software company because everybody talks about that and very few people pull it off you pulled it off and then pricing we get back on this week's service. Ah, yes. If you want to build a website or an online store, or you want to do a conference, or maybe you've got some really creative project you want to do, or maybe just a portfolio, there is only one place for you to go. I literally was on the phone with a founder who was like, how do I make something beautiful? And she was like, going to spend $35,000, I kid you not, on a website with modest functionality to some crazy agency. And I said, hold on show me the scope of work she shows me the scope of work i said you realize squarespace is better than this and squarespace is literally going to cost you one percent of what they're asking for for the next couple of years squarespace makes beautiful websites that's all you need to know and they have tons of templates that are all responsive you get to be part of the squarespace ecosystem which is constantly improving you can blog and publish content that's obvious promote your business sell products and they have all these beautiful templates by world-class designers that work on all devices they also put a ton of energy into seo search engine optimization plus you get the free and secure hosting 24 7 award-winning customer support and of course they added e-commerce we decided in 2020 to make the best use of the pandemic we were locked up in our houses and i looked and i said you know there's all these companies not getting funded we started something called remotedemoday.com i said to everybody i want the website up in 24 hours they had it up in minutes and then we just had to write the copy we got it all up online and it has played a huge part in that. We actually purchased the RemoteDemoDay.com domain right on the site. Go to squarespace.com slash twist for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code twist and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. 
please use the promo code TWIST so they know that I sent you. Squarespace and the team have been an incredible partner of this program for years. Anthony, great founder. We'd love to have him back on the pod, actually. We have to check in. We, have, we haven't talked in a long time. So go ahead and use uh, squarespace.com slash twist. Thanks again, Squarespace and the team over there for making great software. Welcome back, everybody. Follow Emery Wells on the Twitter, E-M-E-R-Y-W-E-L-L-S. He's the CEO and co-founder of Frame.io. You can go check him out. It's free for individual users, right, on a pricing basis. And then uh, 15 to 25 bucks a seat, depending if you're like a pro or a, a team member or something like that. Maybe mm-hmm. you get a discount if you get, you know, 100 employees on it or something. Or does it go price yeah. go up if you use it? The price goes up. Price goes up, yeah. Oh, the I mean, price goes up. Because you need yeah, to there's check. More features. There's more yeah, features. There's a lot more features, yeah. Got it. So what's the biggest footprint of a customer? And uh, how do they look at your pricing? And yeah. How did you determine all the pricing? Pricing is such a complex thing. The biggest footprint of a of a customer is like in the thousands of seats, and wow. so it's you know it. it uh, we've had big deployments. So we have, you know, we had a studio. We have a studio. Um, we did a deal with a studio which I cannot name, but they they uh, committed to um, you know doing 150 original pieces of content in in our platform, and so that was thousands of seats. And uh, you know, studios work with a lot of you know. You know, the studios are financiers. They're not actually doing the work themselves, but they wanted to centralize and have central governance over everything that they owned. And so it was still like- Right, they work with, with production like, companies, right? That's their, right. Mm-hmm. they don't own all the video editing bays mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, at least in New York, actually. All the video editing bays were kind of like a WeWork style, right? You would rent those for yep. your project. You yep. would rent the editors. The right. editors were all freelance, I believe. Yeah. Or they work for yeah. production companies. Yep. And then the studios would just subcontract out with those production companies, right? That's Why do right. they do it that way instead of having like a hundred video editors on staff? And are they moving to that as Disney becomes like Disney has basically become Disney Plus, right? Like that's the company. Yeah. Right. So and Netflix has always been that way. Are they gonna move eventually to having that in house or is it just not how the artists like to work? I'm curious. It's not how the artists like to work. It, it that is a model that you're seeing in you won't I don't that's not a model that you see in studios and nor will we see that model in studios, but you do see that model in a lot of companies that would have previously hired like an agency. Mm-hmm. So if you're a brand, um, a lot of brands, right? So like brands video is the way people want people want to receive information. So people that were doing marketing that was like maybe 10 years ago is banner ads and email marketing and blah, blah, blah. All these companies need to be able to create video. And they're bringing it in-house mm-hmm. where they previously would have hired somebody, a freelancer, hired an agency, whatever. And that's because, you know, the the cost of doing this has come down dramatically. The equipment is so much more uh, um, accessible. So that's moving in-house. But for the studios, no, they're, they're going to continue that model, which makes sense for them. They're, you know, when you want like the highest, they're constantly working with different groups of creatives and, you know, those people want freedom. It's, it it kind of works better in that model for them. Yeah, I remember when I was doing this reality TV show, I got like the inside skinny on how this all works. And they're like, yeah, these production companies are getting whatever, $400,000 $400, an episode. And then they're renting themselves back their machines or, you know, like yeah, it was yeah, like yeah. all this money was yeah. moving around and people were, you know, getting all different pieces of the budget for, you know, renting. Yeah. And then they were buying their own Avid machines, renting them to themselves or whatever it was. It was, mm-hmm. it was pretty interesting. Yep. How did you yep. cross the chasm between having, being an artist and, you know, having a production company and then trying to raise money as a software company because people try to yeah. do that all the time and it doesn't work. It's hard to do. It is hard to do. Um, so I've had two passions in life. One was to be a filmmaker. And, you know, when I, when I, 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 for the sort of 
10 years that I did it most professionally, I did post-production and, and I did visual effects. And post-production and visual effects are like the intersection of creativity and technology. It's very, very technical. And I love that intersection. Like that's where I love to live. And so while I was doing post-production, you know, I always dreamed of having a tech company. I always wanted to build software. And, um, but you know, I was, I'm not, I, I, there's a couple things I've tried in life and sort of failed at. Like I've given, I've, I've learned, I've tried to learn how to become a developer or an engineer like six times, like an earnest effort. I've probably read 20 coding books and I've just never gotten good. It was just never, it was just like, didn't click, you know, like I tried and I tried and I tried and I tried and it just didn't, I just never got good. But, but you were good um, at motion graphics and editing video. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, yes. Uh, and there's, uh, we did a lot of technical services, motion graphics, visual effects, color grading, finishing, dailies, all, all kinds of stuff. And uh, it was when I met my co-founder. My co-founder I hired right out of college uh, at my post-production company to do a job that had nothing to do with engineering, but he did have exposure to computer science in school and continued learning uh, just kind of on the side. And we, I, you know, he was like showing me stuff he was learning and stuff that he was doing. I was like, oh, that's really cool. I'm like, man, like maybe we should do, we should do something. We should, we should make an app. Why don't we make an app? And we made a little iPhone app together and that was our first time like building an app. And we just had so much fun. It was so fun. I designed it. He built it. Um, uh, I've, I've, you know, I've done design my whole life. And after that experience, you know, it was a small app, niche app for our industry. Um, we were like, all right, we got to build something and like make software. We can do this. And I think we're really good at it. Hmm. And so we thought about a bunch of different ideas, things that we could do, like, you know, location-based photo sharing app and being the next Instagram and, and all the, we were working on a lot of those ideas, but, you know, the realization that we came to was all of those companies and not to take anything away from those founders, those are lottery companies. There's only, hmm. you're either Instagram Consumer or Consumer is lottery. You're right. Yeah. It's lottery, right? You're in yeah. your snap or you're nothing. You're Instagram or you're nothing. There's no like moderate Everybody success. cares or nobody cares. <laughs> Everybody cares or nobody cares. And we're like, you know what? We don't want to put That's ourselves in that lottery. It, right? Why don't we do something that we know really, really well that we can build a business? If we're going to spend the next like X number of years doing something, let's guarantee that we have an outcome. So we said, well, let's, we're going to, let's, we're going to build this, this, for, uh, build this solution for this problem. We, we understand deeply. And so we started Frame.io and, um, we had no connections to Silicon Valley whatsoever. Didn't know anybody, but you know, you said like, I, uh, if you haven't built software before, you don't come from that industry. You don't have a lot of credibility. And that's right. I thought I'm like, Hey, well, I've built like a, I've built like a multi-million dollar company. Like maybe that gives me credibility and it didn't. So, um, we, we built, we built the product and we, we did a, a viral launch. You know, those, you know, those, there's all kinds of companies that do really good viral launches where they get sort of tons of like organic social spread and, you know, the, everything from the like, here's the coin and you drop it in the bucket and then you do this and the, the, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. We did a really good viral launch. We spent three months working on a viral launch and we, and we, and we launched it and it did its thing. It went viral. We had, you know, thousands and thousands of tweets. And then I just started getting all this inbound from investors. I was getting invest. I was getting inbound from Andreessen and Excel, and I was like, "Oh my god, I wow. I couldn't I couldn't believe it." So and just so, from the launch, so if you coordinate a really big launch day, yeah, that actually works. Well, it, it, yes, we because it, it was. I mean, we were on the front page of Hacker News. We were on early early product hunts. You know, we had tons of organic impressions on social. And so, yeah, that, that worked. I mean, not only was it the initial base of users, but it got us. Was there a tool in, that did that really well? No, we built it all from scratch. We did it, wow. we did it all from scratch and we spent three months building this like launch thing. Mm. It was like, it was like, you, you know, it was, um, first there was like a couple components to the launch. First, it was like an absolutely like dripping, gorgeous landing page. Like it was, you know, you know, when you see a page, like I've never seen that on the internet before. Like, oh, that's yeah. really cool. Calm we down, did one calm, of those. Yeah. Right. We did one of those. And so that was just like very eye catching. 
And then usually the, the sign up is drop your email. We'll let you know when it's ready. Right. But we did drop your email and then, and then it moved to another screen. It's like, all right, we got your email. You're in, but here's all the things you can do to increase your position in line. And we had a little, uh-huh. you know, the gamification and this yes. point, this invite, many a friend, points, this many points, invite a friend, tweet it, invite a friend, blah, blah, blah. Right. So we did all that. And that was like, I mean, people still do that, but that was like back then that gamification was kind of more novel and it really, really worked. So due to that, um, and, and this is, this is the critical piece. So, that, so all of that works, but the critical piece was you got an automated email from me. It was timed specifically to be 15 minutes after you signed up, plain text, no unsubscribe. So it looked plain like a language. real email. It looked like a real email. I mean, really, it, I was like, I was like, Hey, I noticed you just signed up, like, you know, whatever. So it was like a, two sentences it looked like a real email. And from that email, I got thousands and thousands and thousands of responses and where, mm. Where an investor from Andreessen or Excel or whatever, maybe they, like you guys are just lurking around the internet all the time. You might drop yeah. your email in and be like, oh, I want to keep track of this tool. Sure. And then I 15 the minutes time. later, you get, you get an email from the founder. It's like, Hey, why did you, why did you sign up? You're like, Oh, well, it looks cool. And so I uh, was able to engage with the VCs that way. Yeah. So you we're really excited. You developed your pawns. You moved the relationship forward a bit. Yeah. D- exactly. Exactly. So my first pitch ever, my first pitch ever was at Andreessen Horowitz to Steven Sanofsky. And yep. so he had Microsoft was shortly guy. Microsoft guy. So president of my president of windows and Microsoft, he had moved over to Andreessen to be a venture partner. So that was my very, very first, first pitch in my life was to, was to, to Steven. And, um, you know, anyway, he, he loved, he loved the, he loved the pitch, loved the product. Long story short is we did a number of pitches. This was all pre-launch. So we had, we done a, this, this, you know, this, that, that, that launch campaign that I'm talking about, that yeah. was like a pre-announcement. You couldn't use the product at that point. Right. Right. It turns out we were actually a full year away from actually having the product ready. We thought we were like further along. So in that time, in that sort of like year time, I met with a bunch of investors and everybody was like, Hey, amazing product. Wow. Like so cool. Come back to us when people are paying you and nobody, yeah. nobody wanted to invest. And, um, and so we got really close. Like, you know, we got really close, but, um, Ultimately, nobody wanted to, you know, you get the, the typical stuff like, oh, we'd be interested in like participating if there was another lead, you know, blah, blah, blah. Nobody, nobody and looking up for to somebody lead. else to, to validate, to validate, the, validate you, the idea to anoint it. Yeah. And if, and by the way, not the other way to anoint it is to talk to a customer. So you don't have customers, the product's not built, but you've basically done this incredible fanfare. So they're aware of you, but they don't want to pull the trigger. That's right. And, and by the way, that's not, I mean, you know, mentioning, mentioning Andreessen, not a dig on Andreessen. Like that's probably the right way to, I mean, that's, that's probably correct. Right. We are, we're un, unknown, uh, did, have never built software before, didn't have any customers, didn't have a launch product. And so, um, then it took us a full year to actually launch it. And, and when we did the, the actual launch, we did another viral campaign and it worked again. We wow. kind of used the same mechanics and it worked again. And then so you launched you twice. Got, that's, that's a little twice. bit greedy. It's a little greedy, but I like it. It's a little greedy. But actually, <laughs> I I think you should always launch twice. And I can tell you about that. But because you should always do a pre. Go ahead. Tell me. Well, if you have, have if tell you have something big enough that warrants it, you should mm-hmm. always do a pre-announcement and an actual announcement because you get double the bang. Yes. It takes more work. It takes more work. But like people like when people when something's not accessible and it's like, like this, this requires something big and good. You don't want to like tease people with something you don't care about. But if you have something big and good, like tease them, do that pre-announcement. And then, you know, I, I wouldn't say wait a year, but a couple weeks later, then hit them with the full announcement. So anyway, mm. um, we launched and we had immediate traction. We had really good early traction and we were doing 30,000 a monthly recurring revenue in the first 90 days of launch. Mm. So, and that was like these like $15 plans. Wow. And then 
And then we, you know, re-engaged all the conversations and the conversations were totally different. It was totally different dynamics. Wow. Once, how once so? That what hit. would the, now that you got paying customers, how many paying customers did you have at that point? Um, it was, it was quite a few. I mean, it was, I, the, the revenue hundreds number was or like low thousands. Yeah. It was like more than more than in, in the many hundreds. So it was like, it was, um, 30,000 a monthly recurring revenue with these like $15 plans. So now all of a sudden the entire dialogue changes and they want to know what your valuation, the entire dialogue changes. And, um, well, there, there was actually another thing that happened in between, which was prior to actually launching, while we were never able to get a uh, an investor to lead, we did get a large company to go very far down the process of trying to acquire us before we launched. Wow! We had a ten million we had a ten million dollar acquisition offer from um, a wonderful founder. I love this guy. He's such a I won't, I won't name names, but he was uh, loved getting to know him. Big publicly traded company now, and they offered us ten million bucks when it was just me and my co founder. Just me and my co founder. No product. No product. Or just like. Or we had a product, but it wasn't launched. So we, we I'm had guessing a this is either Box, Dropbox. Yeah. Okay. Probably one of those. Probably and could so, be. I'm just taking a guess. Be. Just taking a guess. They've always so, had aspirations of putting a front end and you know being a horizontal platform, you know, for storage, obviously. But they need to go have vertical tools, right? They, on top of that right. horizontal. That's platform. right. Yeah. That's right. So um, we had that. We had that. We had that. So we we use that to anchor our valuation. We're like, well, listen, X. Somebody's going to want to pay us X. So like, we're going to be where we are using mm. that as the anchor for our valuation. Love it. So we wound up doing. A Why'd CD you turn that Excel. down? I'm curious. Take me through your thinking. So I uh, we had You're a lot. There was your co-founder. It's just two of you, right? Just the two of us. So, so it's five we, million each. Yeah, it's a lot of money for a kid from New York. It was. It was. We were. Um, Actually, this, this the, the intro to this to this uh, founder was like my second conversation in Silicon Valley. My first was to Steven Sanofsky, and he was my second. <laughs> Amazing. And and we went to dinner with him in San Francisco. Met his whole team. We wound up being you know wound up being at dinner for like three four hours, and then we immediately went back to the office, their their headquarters, and like we showed them, we gave them a demo because I never gave them a like live in person demo. Anyway. We were doing like the courtship, right? That happens over a long period of time, getting to know each other. And after like this long period of courtship, I told my co-founder, I'm like, God, like, when's he going to, he's got to pop the question, <laughs> you know, like, when's he going to pop yes. the question? Cause you're in this long courtship. <laughs> and, yes. uh, and so, and so finally uh, we had a call scheduled, uh, me and the founder of this other company, we had a call scheduled. And I told my co-founders like, all right, there's nothing else we could possibly talk about on this call. He's got to pop the question. He's mm. got to pop the question on this call. Right. So, um, he asked if you want to go was, to Paris. Right. Right. So this was like 11 PM. It was like 11 PM. My time It's pretty late. And I told my co-founder, I'm like, before getting on this call, I, me and my co-founder said like, okay, what's our buy it now button? Like, what is, what is the buy it now price? And I think we said something like 20 million was our buy it now price. And, uh, um, and so we, we get on the call and we, we, you know, we do a little song and dance and eventually he's like, you know, it does pop the questions. Like we would love, we would love to do something. And he basically, you know, gives us an offer and it was, it was a low offer and it was like, you know, a million bucks or something, which honestly for two people and no product, like an unlaunched product, actually a pretty good deal. Uh, but you know, that uh, frankly, I think what enabled me to very easily say no is actually already had success with my other company. Like that wasn't going to be life changing for me, mm. and uh, so I had to reach down deep into uh, uh, you know muster the courage that I that I all the courage I could have, and I responded with "We're worth 50. 
And that was my response oh. to a million, which is like crazy, right? It's like yeah. totally nuts. But we didn't want to be acquired. And uh, anyway, yeah. we actually wound up getting an offer for 10, which was incredible. But we had spent, this was our, our first big software project. We had put our hearts and our soul into building this product. And like, we knew we had a path ahead of us to do something cool. Yeah. We just wanted, we wanted to do that. You know, we, we really wanted that opportunity. So who, to who do was that. the first uh, investor? Who were the first investors in that seed round or series A? Excel. So Excel was the first investor and we used that offer from that other company as an anchor for our valuation. Um, and we did a $2.2 million seed round at a, I think it was 12.2 post money valuation. So basically said like, we used, you know, it really just based off that we're like, Hey, we got an offer for 10. That's what we think we're worth. So put in 2.2, 12.2 million dollar valuation. And it was a pretty swift, pretty swift deal. And then once you're in the club, then you're in the club. Yeah. Assuming you do well, right? You got to do yeah, well. Yeah, you've been anointed. You know, you got to anointed. You're anointed, and now, and and then, you know, we're just on the on the the track. And Jared now, Leto uh, participated as well. Jared Leto participated. Yep, yep. We had a couple celebs, um, and and Jared's interesting. He because he he doesn't go through people like he just like I talk no. to him directly myself, and yep. you know. He's a great product person. He's actually really good product thinking, and uh, he's been. You Smart know, guy. I don't. I don't talk to him a lot, but he's. You know, he's cool to to work with. He, he's he's into it as well. Like he's really into, he's into startups it. and stuff like that. He he was. He had Uber shares. He's had a lot of cool investments he's done over the years. Uh, and yeah, he's and he's great. He's honestly like you know ah, he's pretty gracious too. Like he invited us to like some stuff in Hollywood World. Like he invited us to his Super Halloween humble. party, and yeah. yeah, just like it was cool. Nice guy. He, yeah, you know, it's really interesting. Like. You would in Hollywood sometimes you meet somebody and you're just like, I wonder if that person with an Oscar or whatever he's got or you know fame or whatever. It's like, oh yeah, he uh, oh yeah, he was in Airbnb and Stripe too. So I mean, he he uh, he hangs with a lot of people in Silicon Valley and is considered yeah. like incredibly humble and he's engaged and he's smart. Like he asks questions and that kind of thing. Yeah, um, totally. And by the way, I'll say one of the things like lightning fast email responder, lightning fast. I mean, like I'm like. Every time he responds in like two minutes, I'm like, isn't he, I think he must be so busy. He's just, I mean, he is on it. Like if I'm giving him an update or something, oh, here, update here, update there. Like, oh, hey, it'd be, you know, be really cool if you could tweet this. Just like fire, just right back. Yeah. He, he, Mark Cuban is like that as well. And Mark Cuban is like, does that at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., like just will write you a two page. He was original investor for us when we were doing our blogging company back in the day. And, you know, he would, he would just write a three. I mean, you would get, it would, for, responsiveness yes but even you know like out of the blue you get a 2 a.m email hey i was thinking about your business <laughs> here's some ideas i mean i think that's why he's well really i'm good a big believer does. in the community i'm a big believer in in you know communication cadence is really important you set the ex like how quickly you respond is like what sets the expectation for how quickly somebody responds to you and so mm -hmm. you know like even with my executive assistant like we have a rule not a rule but like you know if obviously like scheduling is always like constant thing, hard thing. And I um, always try to ensure that like, she'll respond to do scheduling within five minutes after an initial email, like just keeping that cadence really tight and yes. fast really dictates how somebody's going to interact with you. Yeah. And, and, and it shows like, how uh, serious you are about business, right? Like, yeah, if you're a quick responder, you're probably going to build a successful business, you're reacting quickly to important uh, constituents. So where does the business go from here, you get to 200 employees you've got obviously pretty serious revenue and now you're sort of probably bumping up uh, and having instead of uh, venture firms and 
you know, Oscar winners calling you, you might be having SPAC people call you or just people buzzing around. How do you think about the future of the business? Obviously, there's a ton of SaaS companies out there who are buyers, whether it's Salesforce yep. or Twilio or Adobe, um, who have competitive products or maybe, you know, are looking at what you're doing and saying, hey, that's interesting. Um, how do you think about the future now? Because you've you really got to a pretty amazing uh, summit. Are you thinking about this should be independent for a long time to come? Are you thinking about SPACs? Are you thinking about exits or just putting your head down and what's next? Those are all really good questions. And in fact, that was the topic of conversation at our last board meeting before the end of the year, because we're at that stage where you know you have these different avenues in front of you. And um, I think that you know the, the, the dynamics, I, I don't know the answer. Uh, I yep. don't know the answer, but the dynamics that you know you you face uh, that sort of force you to think about that are as you reach the scale, you think about raising you think about raising more money, you think about the valuations of those of those rounds. That sort of sets you on you know one path uh, versus another, at least makes you lean towards one way or another. So I think we're facing some of those decisions. Um, mm. We've got to make some decisions about you know about what we want our future to be, and those are kind of active discussions. It's very hard to know when you have a winning company, what to do, because you have more options. <laughs> and it does complicate it, right? You could stay independent, you could be part of something bigger, you can SPAC, or you can just put your head down and, and keep working, right? And in almost all cases, when you have product market fit, like you do, letting your winners ride is the right answer, right? Like if, I'm not giving you advice here. And then there's something incredible that you happen to be a beneficiary of, of just based on when you came into this, which is, you know, the ability to do secondary transactions didn't exist 10 years ago. Like that that was yeah. not a thing. And now the, you know, you can really have founders like yourself go for the gold because if you wanted to sell some of your shares at a reasonable price to another pre-IPO, you know, late stage investor, that, that opportunity is there, right? You could even- yeah create an SPV yourself for your company and just every six months do a, an orderly secondary sale and, and you can pay down your mortgage on your loft in New York or whatever it is that's seven minutes from the office. You know, like that has changed the game and it's it's just such an amazing turn of events for for founders. I don't like it when it happens at the Series A like Clubhouse. Famously, I think they took a $2 million off the table each or something. That seemed weird, but you know, obviously worth it to win the deal i think uh, ultimately we'll see but yeah that has that has changed that seems like a lot for a that seems like a lot for for an a yeah the secondary stuff came into play for us like in the b and c rounds and it was pretty very very small in the b and a little bit meaningful in the c um but yeah it does it it, it does because you know you, you um i don't think i don't think most founders do this for the money um I think at least I don't know. I think at least most of the successful ones don't, or at least not their primary motivation. Because I think that yeah, um, no, it's an after effect of it, right? Like it's an after, you it's work an after hard effect, and you have the secondary effect that wealth is created for you and your team. Yeah, that's right for the whole team. Yeah, so you, so you want to see some of that, um, some of that win, and um, I, I can imagine that if that those dynamics did not exist, that it might influence uh, your decision a different way. It definitely is great. Also, I find for team members to see that happen. Uh, especially for a New York company where when I was in New York, there weren't a lot of examples of people who got rich off equity, right? It just didn't exist mm -hmm. as a thing. But then yeah. you started to see it with a certain companies going public or Tumblr, I guess was one or, you know, some of these were able to show, hey, yeah, you know, somebody could get rich and could buy a nice house or an apartment or, a, you know, yeah. a car. Well, uh, just, <laughs> over the holiday, the just over the holiday, my co-founder and I were looking at the cap table 
And it was really rewarding uh, when we actually we looked at like, okay, how many people have we made millionaires? And yeah. that was really cool to see. It was really I hadn't like looked at it in that way, and I was like, oh wow. And it's based on it's you know it's paper millionaires, but it's uh, still was it was very rewarding to see that we've been able it to have is, an, an impact like that. It is one of the greatest things ever because you know this is why I really believe in these secondary transactions now when a company gets to product market fit and let's say 10 million or more in revenue, just to do 10% maximum per person or something 5%, it makes it real for them. Mm-hmm. And it lets them believe the story that equity could be worth something. And I think a lot of times, employees at these companies don't believe it, unless yeah. they're at like, you know, Uber or you know, late stage or Google or something, and they and they actually see it happen. Right. But when they see it happen, then it's like, well, oh, again, though, okay. you get the RSUs. It's real every month. I mean, that's right. The uh, RSUs at those big companies, yeah. restricted stock units, it's very real because they're going into your account every month, and you have to pay taxes and all this kind of stuff. And with secondary, it does make it real. We we have taken advantage of a lot of secondary opportunities just to sell ten percent, especially for our syndicate investors, so that they can see that this is real, right? So mm-hmm. just pairing ten percent, you know, two or three times before your company goes public is the best advice I have to people because even let's say you wind up selling 10% three times and then the company goes supernova from there. You, you still got 70% of the benefit of the supernova moment, but you also got the downside protection of the 10, 10, 10, which paid for your apartment or your kid's school or whatever it happened totally. to pay down your credit card debt. And, all right, listen, you've been very generous with your time. Congratulations on uh, just an amazing success and, and uh, you know, go for the gold. It's like- All right, yeah. thanks very much. I, when you, when you get to this level, Emery, like it is so hard to get where you are. You represent one in ten thousand people who you know started, uh, you know, and incorporated. Like to get to your Actually, level, like fu- well, quick funny ending story because yeah. just this morning we had uh, our all hands first all hands of the year, and um, you know I give a rah rah like beginning of the year and yep. just reflection and all, and all that. And I gave the analogy, which I just thought of this morning, but it was a fun analogy for the all hands. Uh, which is uh, reflecting on ask the company, like, you know, how many, what percentage do you think, uh, you know, what do you think the percentage of companies make it to this stage? And we ask people in Zoom, those Zoom chats going, you know, well, 10%, 1%, 5%, whatever. Um, and and then, and then the analogy I made is that like startups are a lot like baby sea turtles. You know, you all hatch on yep. this beach and everyone's excited to make it to the, make it to the ocean, but you know, ripped so apart few, by the seagulls. that's right. Ripped apart, but so few make it to the ocean, but if you make it to the ocean, and you get, you become a, an adult sea turtle. You know, the, the adult sea turtles have very few predators and most of them live long, peaceful lives. And so, you know, this year for us, I said, we're like right at that. We're like, we're like touching the water. We're touching the water and we're like, on, you know, almost past the most treacherous, perilous part of this startup journey and, and like on our way to being an adult sea turtle. That's very suddenly last summer <laughs> for, uh, for film references. You ever see suddenly last summer? I did not actually know. Oh, this is a crazy. It's an it's an adaptation of a Tennessee Williams play. But Elizabeth Taylor's in it. And Catherine Hepburn plays her aunt who wants her to get this crazy um, new treatment for her her hysteria because women suffered from hysteria in the 50s. And it's called a. Um, with electric shock therapy, basically. And the screenplay is by Gore Vidal, uh, actually, which is incredible. And I think they were like maybe two or three years apart in age, Catherine Hepburn um, and Elizabeth Taylor. But it's the, it's the famous scene of Elizabeth Taylor coming out of the ocean in a white one-piece bathing suit that was incredibly risque and crazy at the time. Um, 
But this was when Freud and a lot of that stuff was sweeping through the public consciousness, and it's sort of about unconscious and memory. It's kind of like Christopher Nolan before Christopher Nolan, you know, like Memento kind of like trying to figure out memories and Rashomon kind of Kurosawa influence maybe. I don't know if Rashomon came before. Some of the summer was 59. I don't know what year Rashomon was. Maybe they influenced each other. Anyway, so really good one. Who's your favorite? You said you want to be a filmmaker. Who's your favorite? Who are your top three favorite directors? Well, the everybody has ever top five. wants to. Well, everyone that wants to be a filmmaker, I think they typically have like something like there's a moment or film that inspires them to like yes. to really want to do it. And I'm 38 years old. And when I was 18 wh- uh, was when Lord of the Rings came out, the first edition. And I love fantasy and I love visual yeah. effects and I and I love the magic of big cinema. And that was the film series that really it's been in the generation before me was Star Wars. You yeah. know, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings. Indiana Jones. Big, Indiana Jones. Yeah, there's like a couple that, you know, like Spielberg, really inspired, Jaws. Yeah. inspired generations. And so that was the, that was the film that really Peter inspired Jackson. me. Yeah, it was Peter Jackson. And, and I watched all three of those films, like probably each of them I've probably seen a hundred times, like insane. Cause I studied them. I studied every yes. single frame. scene, shot, frame, everything. And, uh, and that actually is what got me on the path to visual effects. Cause I, I spent a lot of years doing visual effects. And I was like, you know, a, a teenager basically with my crappy camera trying to figure out how to do high-end visual effects and just learn, trying to do basic green screen. And back then it was so hard. Yeah, I was like, how do these feature films get every little strand of hair to be perfectly separated from the background? Yeah, I'm like, that is, I, I became my mission to figure out how to do that level of green screen. And so I spent years, you know, now it's substantially easier, but <laughs> like, it click was a not, button I, in zoom and we'll touch you up and put you on a green screen if you want to see a great film by peter jackson is a one that's a sort of a romp uh of the muppets called meet the feebles did you ever see that Mm -hmm. no i didn't oh my god meet the feebles is completely politically incorrect but it's essentially like imagine the muppets if they were like doing drugs having sex and going absolutely insane like peter jackson was out there in terms of like his thing, but I literally just was watched that, the ex- was that an early early Peter? Jackson, yeah, it was way was before. That- it was 1989. Meet the Feebles. Oh, okay, that was the yeah. Um, he did some crazy stuff. He did some wacky yes. stuff. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it 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 it's really interesting to watch. And uh, he, um, I just watched the extended edition of the Lord of the Rings uh, yeah. with my four year old twin girls, and they loved it. And it's long, and it it drags so at times. That it's extended like four edition. Hours. Four hours each, yeah. It's like it, yeah. you're. It's eleven hours. We. What's your favorite? Uh, I had the blue, the Blu-ray set. Every you know the blue, yeah. And I would watch. Uh, I would stay up all night. I mean, I watch it like almost like a couple times a week. I don't even know what was wrong. I with was me. that way with Blade Runner. Blade Runner was the film for me that I used to. Blade Runner, Gladiator. I I, I think. Yeah, and Black Hawk Down, the Mission. But I really like that. Uh, yeah, Prometheus. I like too. I like that whole. I like anything by. Um, one of the one of the fondest times, uh, Ridley Scott. Yeah, one of the fondest times of my of my life was when I when I first moved to New York. Uh, I was like twenty years old, and you know, I moved here like classic like New York story dream, like five hundred bucks. Didn't know if I could survive. I wanted to be a filmmaker, but I lived across the street from a movie. In fact, I live in Battery Park now, and I my first apartment in New York City, strangely enough, was in Battery Park, right next to the Battery Park uh, Cinema movie theater here. Yeah, they have like which a is multiplex with a giant multiplex. escalator that goes yeah, up. Exactly. Like- yep. Yep. Yeah, and I lived, right the across, I lived right across the street from that. And so I grew up in Florida and like, you know, in Florida, you have to drive anywhere. So I was right across the street from a movie theater and I would go BMC, almost yeah. every night. Yep. I would go almost every night with a notebook and a flashlight and I would watch <laughs> movies and I would just take notes and I would just take, and it was, the, it was the cool, and I would go by myself. Yeah. And I, I just thought I was the coolest person in the world. Like 
living in New York City. I'd go to the movie theater. I'm like, I'm going to be this filmmaker. I'm taking notes with my little flashlight. And uh, that was that was a really fun time. We had the Film Forum in New York. And then there was a place called Theater 80 um, on St. Mark's Place. I don't know if it's still there. But Theater 80 used to do, it's like a little tiny 50-seat theater or something. Uh, Or maybe it's, yeah. Anyway, they would have all the revivals. So they owned copies of all the Kurosawa films or whatever, you know. French New Wave and in Film Forum every year did their Kurosawa festival and they would do double features. So they do two noirs or two samurai or whatever. And you would, go, we would just go and try to stay awake. You know, we'd see two Kurosawa films a night for four nights in a row. Just, but the Angelica was the other one where we just, yeah, see Angelica's still there. They're still around. Well, the, I mean, the Angelica in New York in like the 90s when Sundance and Sex Lies and Videotape and, you know, independent film was peaking was, it was like the center of the world. You would go to St. Mark's, uh, when you went to, you know, Houston and Broadway, and when you went to the Angelica, the scene outside were celebrities, filmmakers, just everybody hanging out in the lobby. And people would be, yeah, it was, it was like the center of culture in, in, a, in a lot of ways. And now film is not. It's no. somehow that the feature film is. TikTok is the center of culture now. Ugh, it's gross. It's such a waste. Ugh. And like we used to actually go to see these films and then talk about them. Like it yeah. was a really important thing to have seen these films a- as yeah. a piece of art and a piece of, piece of cultural relevance. And if you didn't see a certain film, you were just, how could you operate in the world if you hadn't seen certain, you know, Paul Thomas yeah. Anderson films? I, do, I, mean, I, do, I do think it's still a very important part of our, our connective social tissue. I mean, like if you're meeting a stranger, you can talk about shows like, oh, do you watch this yeah. show? Do you watch that show? And you can instantly connect with people. I, I think it is a, still an important part of our social connective tissue. Yeah. I think I was just talking to a friend of mine who's a filmmaker, Nick Jarecki, um, and he did arbitrage and he's got a new one out now. And I was like, if you made these into seven hours, you you know, all these filmmakers were constantly asking for more time to make their film yeah. like three. I would like to go to yeah. three hours. And they're like, no, keep it yeah. to 90 minutes or whatever. Harvey Weinstein would cut your, you know, three hour film down to 80 minutes or 90 minutes. And now they have the ability to do some incredible piece of art like, you know, Queen's Gambit or whatever. I mean, the production value on these things is just, or Mandalorian. Like, Mandalorian is what, a nine hour Star Wars movie? Yeah, Mandalorians really trail. They're really trail ba- trailblazing some some new tech. Uh, the fundamental thing that they're doing um, is they are um, uh, they're replacing on set on set green screen um, with virtual sets uh, that uh, enable them to kind of film the virtual set in camera. And it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it looks great. And it's incredible. Yeah, they use the. Really- I, I was. I talked to Fa- I talked to John Favreau about this actually. They use like the Unreal Engine to. Yep, make like a right. world. Yep, and then yep. it's an actual. I don't know if they're LEDs, interactive. Or OLEDs, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. fully and interactive. So it's incredible. pretty incredible. But they're doing a camera that's filming a screen behind the actors. That's right. Yeah. So typically, there would be a green screen, and then you go yes. into post production and you replace the green screen. Now it's a live. It's a it's a screen that has the full Unreal Engine or whatever it is they're using, and and they can. It's connected to the camera. So if the camera moves, the virtual background moves. Wow. And you can explore your shot. It's more like being in the real location, right? You can find your shot. It's 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 pretty That's incredible. Insane when you think about it. What that unlocks, like literally unlocks the same sound stages. They're going to be able to walk on there and do the Ashoka series or the Bad, but whatever the whatever you know spin outs Obi Wan or whatever. And once they make that Unreal Engine, it's almost as if they've created like Call of Duty, 
and they're just going to different places in the Call of Duty yeah. video game and shooting yeah. scenes. That's right. Well, the, the world of gaming and the world of cinema have long been just like very adjacent. I mean, the technology yeah. is all the same. It's just that, you know, like the, the gaming real time gaming engines were just never up to the quality that was necessary for for film. And now it's it's reached that level, you know, mm. so like, I mean, I don't think people realize that the, the rendering time, like on a per frame, like if you take even like a Pixar film or something, yeah, like, it, you know, it could be like, 10 20 hours per frame with like a giant farm of servers that are rendering like that's how much compute power it takes to do like pixar level rendering and we're getting now to the stage where for backgrounds at least not like tight close-ups but for backgrounds you can use a real-time game engine it's pretty it's pretty remarkable it is unbelievable and just you know people the quality of people's screens they're watching on the fidelity of your ipad now is just so crystal clear it's it's pretty crazy it's almost I had to, there's a feature on your TV where you can kind of de-escalate the, <laughs> the Christmas of it because sometimes you watch Law and Order or some other old movie and you're like, oh, that's a set. <laughs> it's, they, they can kind of blur it down to make it you know, almost like a little more. All, I mean, f- yes, much to the, the, I mean, filmmakers absolutely despise all these features that are in televisions that they use to like enhance the picture. They're like, just yeah. we've done, we want, we've made our picture look like what we want it to look like. Just show the picture. We don't want all your add-on crap like that you're trying to do to like mess up. You know, they have their 60 hertz mode. They have their yeah. like sharpening. They have like all this crap that they add to it. And the filmmakers hate it. They hate it because it messes up the picture. It messes up their intention. Yeah. I, I, I want to go see more films in, um, what is it, 70 millimeter is the... I saw the um well very few are being done but the you know there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a um you know now it's a bit of a push to like high frame rate it's not being it was a, people thought we were going to adopt it like you know uh um the hobbit was shot at 60 frames per second which makes it have that very hyper smooth look yes. which most filmmakers despise most that's like cuz it's sacrilegious cuz you know for years that's what video cameras looked like cuz video cameras couldn't shoot at 24 frames per second so like that that ethereal look of film people think must be at 24 frames per second but now there's people that like 60 frames and you know that's a trend going on I saw on. the hateful 8 in 70 millimeter when they did that special roadshow did you see that no. And it, oh yeah. So Quentin Tarantino uh, did this like hateful eight seventy millimeter roadshow, and they they put an intermission in it, and he went and had to go find like all the old projectors, and he had to find the projection people, and like yeah. they were breaking, and the lights didn't work, and uh, yeah. Well, Quentin's he's a he's a purist. He's he's yeah. he's there's a handful of purists that just they're not going to do digital. They're not going to you know like, but um, and he's my favorite he's part of it was. In the roadshow, the Hateful Eight roadshow, they gave you a program with all photos from the shoot and everything like that. So you got this like program. And then when you came in, they were playing. I think Nolan did Dunkirk in 70 millimeter as well when he released it. And he got a bunch of advice from Quentin. But they not only did they give you this pamphlet, they had the music playing, like the overture, uh, mm-hmm. playing with like a title card that was kind of interactive or moving. And then they had an intermission for 15 minutes where they also played music. And so you had this like really interesting, like it was almost like going to theater in terms of the anticipation and they took out the commercials. It was really an amazing, really amazing experience. Anyway, listen, I could talk to you about film all day. Congratulations on, uh, so you see, that would be a reason, Emery. If you take the company public, then you'll be like 45 years old. 
get a little bit of money in the bank, you can go be a filmmaker. <laughs> you can go back to Well, your I never did. I mean, that's right. Because I never did. My my initial uh, dream was to make a feature. Everyone starts by wanting to make a feature film. They want to be a director. Yeah. And I've had an idea in my head for 20 years. Wow. Inspired by Lord of the Rings and fantasy worlds and all of that. And I've for 20 years, this I've been making this film in my head. And so maybe one day, maybe, maybe you get to make it. You know what? I think there it there is a, there is going to be a convergence that happens uh, because I was watching Star Wars Theory d- did a Vader fan film. And those fan films now are starting to look like video games and using video game engines and stuff like that. And I think the fan films are going to, ca- you know, like in five or 10 years, it's completely possible that the fan films will look like The Mandalorian, right? And... The, the fans the game, are making oh yeah, Star so, Wars kind. They're getting there. Yeah, the game, the, the game engines change the game for sure. You can do incredible things in these game engines. All right, listen, I kept you forever. Great uh, great job on the company and we'll uh, continue lo- luck with it. And I'm assuming you're hiring and uh, you can work from home. We're hiring, you can work from home, all roles. There you go. So go uh, to frame.io slash career slash jobs, jobs.frame.io, something like that. Something yeah, frame.io like that, yeah. jobs. It's got to yeah. be a job board somewhere. All right, Emery, continued success. Thank you very much. Cheers. And we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye-bye.